Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your go-to Detroit Pistons podcast, The Pistons Pulse, co-hosted by me, Bryce Simon of Motor City Hoops, a former D1 Hooper and current teacher, husband, and father of three amazing kids. Nabo Mari Sanko for the second Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. And of course, we're blessed to always be joined by our producer, Wes Davenport. For those of you listening live, we're sorry for kind of the delay here. A true winter blizzard storm, whatever hit Kansas yesterday. Not even really about the snow, Amari. I don't know how many inches we got. I know the drifts are halfway, if not higher up the fence. It was really about the wind, man. And then we lost power and I tried to do it on my hotspot and it just was not working at all. So we figured it was better. So shout out to all the people that take care of us whenever the weather's bad, because it would not have been fun to be out fixing whatever they fix to get us electricity back in the town. No doubt. Yeah, definitely glad you guys didn't have to deal with the power being out all night. And this is episode 104 and only the first time I think we had to push back because of technical difficulties. Uh, I know I had a power outage like the summer before last, like summer 22, and I went to the library to record. That's before yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> like that's before we were recording live. So, you know, I don't know if, it, if anybody knew, but we had a pretty good track record going there. So hopefully the weather doesn't mess us up too much more uh, going forward this winter. Well, and the thing is, when we were doing those, Omari, uh, the internet connection didn't have to be as good. Whenever we were just doing yeah. audio, no video, definitely not lives, it wasn't that big of a deal. But when you're on a live like we are all the time, like you really need the internet to be working right. And it, it gives us a little thing up in the top whenever our connections are bad. And mine yesterday was like at the very, very bottom or essentially yeah. wasn't even showing up. And you and Wes were trying to talk to me. It wasn't working at all. So anyway, all good is everything is good here. All good. All clear. Internet's working. We're recording. We're talking pistons. We'll get it out to you guys today. Again, if you listen on Apple, Spotify, thumbs up us on like it on YouTube, ratings, reviews, all that. We did get a new one, another new one on Apple. This is from Matt Way 86. If this is the Matt Way, because I assume there's more than one Matt Way in the world. If it's the one I think, thank you. Somebody that I know, a big supporter, and I appreciate him very much. He says, must listen for pistons fans. Omari is an excellent beat writer and Bryce is as good as it gets breaking down the game. They do an excellent job bringing necessary context to the Pistons' struggles, even when it's not the most popular take. It's refreshing to hear critical but fair and level-headed Pistons' discussion. I think those are the ones that have really hit this year, Omari, where people appreciate that we don't come on here and just get hot takey. But I do think we, probably more than ever, have said like, hey, this isn't going well. Hey, this person hasn't done their job necessarily well. This person hasn't exactly played well. And so those are the ones that kind of mean the most to me, to be honest. Yeah, I don't think anybody would have guessed 3-33 and 33, uh, this year. That's pretty hard to predict. And it's interesting because it's been a challenge just in the sense that we've had very few wins to talk off of. I mean, they won twice the first week and then only once since. So we've talked almost entirely off of losses for uh, two months now. But I think along with that, 
it opens the door for discussion for the future of the franchise and how you fix what they're currently in, which I think is a lot more, I want to say more interesting than last season because K was out, but I think it's been interesting to kind of like tackle it from a different direction. And we try to be fair with it, of course, as usual. So Matt, we appreciate the comment there and feel free, again, if you're listening live or after the fact to leave a review or comment on Apple. We appreciate it. We love the feedback. We can handle criticism too, but we are trying to keep that 4.9 stars as well. So please be honest, but not too honest if it's less than a five-star review. Yeah, we have a little too many one stars to get back up to five, but I'll live with 4.9. I'm cool. And Jay's here with us this morning. says, hello from Cardiff. Cardiff. Tina Pistons. Bryce was on our pod. Love Jay. Yes, Jay. I remember that. It was a great joining the ice pod. So appreciate that. You talked about this team moving forward and growing and all that. We will have everybody's favorite guest, hopefully, and friend of the pod. And we do and are allowed to call him friend of the pod because he says that himself. Keith Smith will be with us on the next episode. We are hoping to record that live sometime Sunday. I would guess Sunday morning, especially with the Lions playing Sunday evening, but we still got to work out that schedule entirely. But right now we've kind of lined that up to record with Keith Smith next Sunday. So if you're listening live right now or on the pod, look out for that. If you don't normally join us live, join us live for that one. Everybody knows Keith is amazing. And we'll talk through what went wrong, where this team is at, what assets they have moving forward at the deadline, which is less than a month away into the offseason and all of that. So that'll be a good one. Before we get into the last week that was, we'll talk a little bit about my trip to Denver and us getting to hang out, Amari. I got to ask you, I mean, I feel like you want to talk about this to lead off the pod. The Michigan Wolverines are the college football national champs as Wes Double fist his hands in the air. Amari, I know you have some love for the Wolverines here on a Tuesday morning. I don't have any comment. I was just, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, like I have a, lo- a lot of friends who went to Michigan, a lot of family who have been rooting for Michigan, you know, for years. And, you know, coming off of the worst season in Michigan State, recent memory, I would say, you know, I think that's just very, very fitting. So I'm not going to say shout out to the Wolverines. You know, I would just say, Maybe just from a big, an overall Big Ten state of Michigan perspective, maybe there's something to be found there resembling joy. But right now at 8.07 in the morning, that's not necessarily the emotion. Yeah. You know, I'll leave it at that. You know, I'm not going to say anything rude. You know, enjoy your day, Michigan fans. I'll just be over here quiet, not basking in it, but just watching from afar. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> All right. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the Pistons. So since the calendar turned to 2024, they are 0-4 since that Raptors win. A 23-point loss to the Rockets, the 6-point overtime loss to the Jazz, the 4-point loss to the Warriors, and the 17-point loss to the Nuggets. Omari, I'm going to throw out some stats just from the last four games. And let's let's dive into these and talk about these a little bit. We'll talk about some specific things we saw in the game. In January, four games. They This was before Monday night's games, I believe, guys. So this this has shifted a little bit. They're actually 11th in offensive rating. That you know, overtime win probably helped that a little bit. 30th in defensive rating by 2.2 when I looked this up on Monday afternoon. Eighth in offensive rebound percentage. 20th in defensive rebound percentage. Only 13th in turnover percentage. So that's better. And 14th in pace. Are there any one of those numbers that really jump out more than any of the others? I would say the offensive rating. Yeah. 11th is the one that jumps out. The most, I'm sure a lot of that was helped by them scoring. And as you mentioned, Bryce, 148 points against the Jazz, the Utah Jazz last week. 
But I think a lot of that, too, is also just that you look at just what Cade's done over the last couple months. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him and his situation with the the left knee. But this team has not struggled to score the ball as much this past week. I mean, they didn't even shoot it that well against Golden State and until the end. And they were still right in that game. Again, largely thanks to Cade until the end. And it's just the fact that they can't defend. I mean, in that same span, you're 30th in defensive rating. And uh, somebody asked me on Twitter over the weekend, why do we talk so much about their offense and not their defense? Which I think we talk about both, but we probably are focused on the offense a little bit more. But to me, the bottom line for this team is that they're just not going to improve that much on defense unless they make some trades. It's just to me a personnel issue. They're, you can't internally develop <laughs> a league-worst defense into being something average probably in the middle of a season. You don't see that happen too often. So obviously a lot of roster holes to finish, but just looking at their improvement on offense, you have Duran back, you have Bogey back, K playing at the level he's at. I think that shows to some extent that this team can hang with teams from a scoring standpoint. A lot of where they mess up, I think, is just giving up those big runs where suddenly they're out of the game. And we've seen that all season. But it seems like the offense is ticking up. It's a four-game sample size, but I think with K playing the way he has and Duran being back, Bogey being back, it makes sense that they would be ahead of where they were over the first block for a month and a half or so. Scott, I see your question and comment in the comments. And yeah, guys, if you're listening live, drop those in. We're pretty loose with the outline today. So we'll try to get to some of these at some point as we're talking about things. But appreciate your love for the pod and all of that. Let's stay with both of those things that you brought up, Amari, because I do think, you know, the offenses look better. Like you mentioned, Kate Burks has really scored the ball well. I think when we were there in Denver, setting in the media row, I looked up his last six games and it was something ridiculous. You know, he's shooting like 44% from three and averaging 16 points. And that was before the Nuggets game. It's really about the defense. And so I want to bring up one thing that continues to be a little bit frustrating for me, Amari. I tweeted about this. I think it was after the Jazz game because of what happened in that Jazz game at the end. And it's the off-ball miscommunication for this team. There are so many times where you see them miscommunicate and off-ball just what should be an easy switch or an easy navigate the screen, and they mess it up. In that Jazz game, it was the root of the Larry marketing open three-point make at the end of regulation, and then it was also the rue of the Clarkson dagger in overtime. So at the end of regulation, bogey, and I think Livers was actually involved in both of these. And then Lowry went into a ghost and pop. They miscommunicated the switch or not switch, and the person was late. And then Clarkson did a similar thing in overtime. I think that one was between Cade and Livers. So these are super impactful off-ball miscommunications that are leading to easy buckets. And like that seems like something simple. I don't, I, I'm not saying that it is, but I think it's not just hey, Duran has to be better. Ivy has to be better. We've talked, I think we've talked about defensive impact, Amari, but usually on an individual basis, maybe not the team wide basis. I think something as simple as that, just some of their off ball stuff, getting cleaned up and getting better would really help at least start to make some improvements. I agree. This team had similar issues last year as far as just communicating and making sure everybody is where they need to be. I think, honestly, I think a, a reason why Isaiah Livers is starting is just because he's one of the guys who tries to get people in position a little bit more so than other guys on the, the team. But, you know, obviously it's personnel, but, yeah, the communication has been a big factor in that too. And, you know, I guess if you're the coaching staff, you hope that it's just a young team symptom and maybe by bringing some more veterans in, you could hopefully increase that 
level of communication and get guys on the same page a bit more. But, you know, it has been a mess. And obviously it's tough for this team when you're giving up buckets like that marking in three at the end of games, you know, just not really being able to step up and contest the shot. You know, I think that's a tough way to go out. You know, I guess long term, is it better to have a, an offense that's finally functioning and you know that you can make personnel swaps on defense to hopefully increase the level there? I don't know, but yeah, a lot of it is just blowing coverages, <laughs> honestly. And, you know, if they communicated even 15% better, they'd probably get at least one win during that trip last week because they also went down to the wire against the Golden State Warriors until Steph scored 14, I think, in the last been in half for two minutes. They came really close to two wins last week, and that's just been the theme of the season is them just falling short of the margin a little bit because of errors that could probably be cleaned up. So you bring up the wins, and Basketball Reference is is a great source. It's one of the main ones I go to, along with NBA.com. We lose Spotrack for cap stuff. You know, that's obviously where Keith Smith works. But Basketball Reference has this Pythagorean wins thing, stat. And I, I don't subscribe to all of these, but I find it interesting. We all know the Pistons are currently 3-33. and 33. By their Pythagorean win metric, and again, I don't subscribe to all of these. I'm not saying this is an end-all, be-all. I haven't dove into what all it, it, you know, it includes, but it actually says they should have eight wins. Now, if this team was 8-28, and 28, I'm not saying we would all be, you know, double-fisting like this whenever Wes, you know, whenever I was talking about Michigan winning the national championship. I get it. But I just find that interesting that we continue to look at some of these metrics. They're 27th in offensive rating, 27th in defensive rating. Like they shouldn't be, by a lot of these metrics, the worst team historically bad the way they are in terms of wins and losses. Like I just want, Amar, do you think this ever, is this truly who they are or are they a touch better than this? Like is, are they at least not historically bad? 28 losses in a row bad. Are they a little bit better than this? Or like at some point, I also subscribe to you are what your record says you are, Amari. And, and I kind of believe in that as well. So maybe they are three and 33 bad, but there are some things you could point to where say like maybe they're bad, but they're not historically bad. They're not the worst team in the NBA by far bad, like their three and 33 record would suggest. Yeah, that's kind of just been what, you know, I and other people in media and, you know, I'm sure fans of the team as well, I've kind of grappled with, right, is is this team just underperforming or are they truly just this bad? And at this point, we're more than a third of the way to the season. Actually, pretty close to the one-third mark, you know, we'll be there in a couple of weeks. I'm sorry, the one-half mark will be there in a couple of weeks. And after a certain point, like, you probably do have to shift to, like, the the latter thought, right, that this team just is what it is. They are what they are. It's tough to just see this big of a gap between what you expect the team to be coming into the year and what they actually are, but sort of what's interesting about this season is that there are like four bad teams, right? It's the Pistons, Spurs, Hornets, and Wizards, and then the rest of the league is like some level of competitive, and I feel like we've just seen that gap between, it seems like the NBA's bottom becomes smaller every year, but the gap between the bottom and like, I guess, the the middle class becomes bigger every year, and the Pistons just have not made that leap. Uh, largely for for death reasons. I mean, they haven't gotten much from their offseason acquisitions. Joe Harris and Monte Morris, who is still hurt. Ideally, Monte would be trending back at some point this month, but no updates as of now. But 
Yeah, as a whole, I mean, you look at some of the metrics that say they should be slightly better than they are, but even with that, it's not like they're adding 10 wins on the board, right? No, it's no, like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a few, and maybe you're like a five or six win team, which pushes you to like Wizards territory, but you know, you're still far, far out of the overall conversation for com- competing. So to me, it just shows that this team just does not have the, the depth it needs to compete. You probably have the talent at the, the top, but once you get past a certain level on this roster deep, it just becomes clear that uh, this team just doesn't have as many guys who can make a difference as most of the rest of the league. And that's an issue that they may not be able to solve in season. It may be something that they just have to approach in the offseason. Like, let's just increase the talent floor for this team and uh, put a team on the floor that can compete at the very least for our 48 minutes. Yeah, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not saying we should be sitting here with a 500 team or if they had six or seven wins, we would be happy. I just want... It seemed like during that 28-game losing streak, there were some games they could have got. Like, right at the beginning, there were some games they could have got. And then, like you said, this last week, the Utah game, the Golden State game were games they could have. There's just a lot of, like, man, they could have got those, and they just haven't got. It seems like they haven't got any of them, Amari. Like, the Raptors game, I hate to say this, probably the only reason they won that game is because the OG IQ RJ trade went down, and the Raptors were so shorthanded. Now, they did play their starters a ton in that game. But I, I don't know. I just I keep looking at those like, man, this team could have two or three more wins. Jeremy Goldberg brings up an interesting question there. He goes, is there a lineup that Monty could put in to stop the bleeding when the other team starts going off? This is an interesting question to me because in a lot of my notes, I feel like there's a point in the middle of the game, Amari. Lots of times we see the end of games, right, where they don't close it out or they don't hit the shots or whatever. There's a lot of times in the middle of the game where I feel like Detroit is not taking advantage of a six-point lead turning it into a 10-point lead or a 10-point lead turning it into a 15-point lead where you really create separation. That Utah game, this was a little bit later, but they had a nine-point lead, Omari, with like six minutes, eight minutes to go in the fourth. Burks had a turnover, Wiseman had a turnover, and then Burks and Livers missed wide open three-pointers. And I don't want to crush Burks. I know he had a great game in this one. They had a six-point lead a little bit later. Cade turned it over. They have a four-point lead with two minutes and 30 seconds left. Burks misses a wide open three. So I'm not talking like right at the very end of the game. I'm talking about, and that's the fourth quarter, but even in some games, it's the second quarter. They get up by that Nuggets game, Amari. What were they up by when that timeout happened? Or I think they went on a little run. Denver called a timeout. Denver came out of the timeout, went on a 6-0 run. And I think Jokic wasn't even in the game. I think that's where they're missing their opportunities to build a little bit more of a substantial lead where they can hold that lead all the way till the end. So I think that's where I think this team can really get better. As far as the lineup, I don't know. Maybe this plays into, you know, Monty going full second units and all of those things. But that's something I think they could improve on. Yeah, the meets have a lineup that could stop the bleeding. A good percentage of that has to be on defense. You can't just be and we're going to outgun the other team mode the entire game unless you're like a much better offense than this Pistons team has been. I mean, even with this improvement in January, they, they're not a top 10 offense. So, you know, you, that, that can't be your only strategy. And I don't, like, as a team is constructed, unless Jalen Duran or one of the bigs make a massive leap on defense and two of their wings develop or guards develop into uh, guys who can really keep the defender in, in, in front of them and they can navigate screens and everything. There probably is not a, a lineup Monty can put out there that's just going to really lock down on on defense and preserve that lead. I think a lot of the, the defensive issues kind of start at center, you know, where Durant's probably your highest upside guy there, but he's still 20 years old and is still learning 
you know, like Wiseman and Bagley haven't had histories of being plus defenders and they haven't been this season. And then Isaiah Stewart's probably your most well-rounded player in that group, but he's missed time and there's still matchups that are bad for him, right? You know, if you're going against a, a front unit that is, you know, like a big unit like Utah, you're probably giving something up with Stu at the five. So that's what's tough. You know, I think when it comes down to that, it's just more so a personnel issue where you need defensive stoppers on this roster who can agitate the opposing team and allow those six-point leads to become 10 or 10-point leads to become 14 or 15. As Wes says, you also can't throw out the all-defense lineup since they can't score at this point as well, right? Options are keep up on O or slow on D, but don't keep up on O. And yeah, I mean, the guys we're talking about who have really played well recently offensively, Alec Burks, obviously Boyan coming back, even Cade Cunningham. Like if there's one thing I've been critical of Cade, it's been his defense. Boyan hasn't been good defensively. You know, Burks is just at that point in his career as well. I think the potential answer is you put Cade going crazy, like nuclear Cade offensively, and then just put good defenders around him. And ideally, though, those good defenders can space the floor. And I don't know that we even have, like, that's the idea of Isaiah Livers, right? And that's kind of the idea of Isaiah Stewart. Well, Isaiah Stewart hasn't been playing recently. Whenever he has, he's been playing at the four. Hopefully that shifts to the five. So some of those answers could have been on the roster, but haven't played out the way we would hoped or wanted to. And some of it is those answers just straight up aren't on the roster. Before we go to break, we do need to talk Kate Cunningham. I want to throw out some stats real quick, Amari, and then you can give the listeners the injury update on Kate. I know everybody knows he's out on Tuesday night. Wes brought up an interesting thing in the outline in terms of how much better Kate has been in the second half of games recently. And I was like, has he really? So I looked up the stats. If you do the whole season Essentially, his first half and second halves are kind of the same. He gets a little more free throw attempts in the second half than the first half, but essentially the same. Over the last 30 days, over the last month, not just January, but the last 30 days, he has been much better in the second half of games. He's averaging almost five more points per game in the second half on on 57% from the field, 40% from three, 90% from the free throw line. So he's 50, 40, 90 in the second half of games over the last month on nine attempts, two from three, and almost four free throw attempts in the second half. So we talked at one point a few weeks ago, especially about the fourth quarter for Cade Cunningham and needing to be better there. I didn't look up those specifically, but in general, the second half, he definitely has been better in the games over the last month. What can you tell me about this? I believe it was his left knee injury that had him miss the second half of the Nuggets game and has him out for the Tuesday night game against the Kings. No doubt. Yeah, there was a report from the Athletic on uh, Monday that uh, the team believes it's not going to be that serious, which, of course, is great news. But still no official update from the team as far as his recovery window. So that's TBD, perhaps today on Tuesday. There will be some news as far as that before this episode is released. So I guess we'll see. But sounds like the team probably dodged a bullet as far as that. I'm glad you brought up his second half numbers because I had actually been tracking that. And I mentioned it in my story a couple of days ago when he suffered that injury that Cade has been like a really great closer for this team. He's had multiple games in the past few weeks where he started off one for six, two for seven, not having a great game. Yeah, and I'm just looking at his numbers here. Golden State, 21 points in the second half, 9 for 11 shooting. Utah, 17 points in the second half, 7 for 9 shooting. Toronto, 26 points in the second half, 8 for 12. Brooklyn, 37 points, 13 for 16. Atlanta, 31 points, 10 for 13. So he's like going nuclear in second halves. It's like night and day 
And if that's just a rhythm thing, it takes him a minute to get going or what it is, I'm not sure. But just in general, in his career, it seems like he's had far more strong second halves than first halves. You don't necessarily see him come out and shoot like five for seven to start a lot. It's worse so. Uh, he comes out a bit cold, and then in the second half, suddenly he can't miss. So even just looking at that last game against Denver, like, of course, the game kind of turned after Cade came out. But the Pistons have been playing from behind a bit throughout these streaks they've been on. And then, you know, Cade's been a big reason why they've been able to get back in games late. And, of course, that element completely disappeared on Sunday with Cade out. So I guess that's the question going forward is can they just find that offense from anyone else on the roster uh, because again I mean I think Case just probably separating himself from the rest of the roster tier wise as a scorer and I mean if you have a guy that's just scoring like that in, in second halves I mean that's that's hard to replace anyway no and I think this is what Cade was in college as well like I think this is kind of who Cade wants to be I remember watching and I wasn't super into the NBA draft then. Obviously, didn't know the Pistons were going to get the number one pick. So I wasn't watching in that way. But I remember watching Cade games when he was at Oklahoma State. And the broadcasters would be like, man, he's got to be more aggressive in the first half. Yeah, he's going to take over in the second. But he's got to be more aggressive in the first. I think this is kind of what he wants to be in terms of get everybody involved, get everybody engaged early in a game. And then he can take over in the second half. If you looked over that last month, Boyan is actually the Pistons leading scorer in the first half of games. And so I think that's where Boyan makes sense with him or somebody like Boyan who can start alongside of him and really get things going there. All right, we're, we're 25 minutes. We got to go to a break. We're going to take a short break here. When we come back, Omari, let's dive into the rookies. We haven't talked a ton about Asar recently. Sasser hasn't got a ton of love from us. We're going to talk about what we've liked, what we've disliked, what we want to see improve moving forward from the two 2023 first round picks of the Detroit Pistons. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back for segment two, and we're going to dive into the play of the rookies, starting off with a star. And I'm glad we're doing this because there's been a lot of debate you know, I think among the fan base and maybe even just from NBA analysts in general about Asar's role as minutes have decreased from early in the season when he was starting and had some of those big numbers. And I think a lot of fans at this point are at the point where it's just like, we have three wins. Let's just play Asar as much as possible and allow him to develop. You look at, you know, just how he's trended through 35, 36 games this season. Him, him and Kane are actually the only two players who have appeared, I think, in every game. Uh, this season, I think the the push and pull that Monty's dealt with with Asar is how do you allow him to develop, you know, tap into what he's done on defense without giving up much on offense. And just the way he shot from from three, I mean, he's been around 20 percent across the entire season. I think it's been tough for Monty to find lineups where the spacing doesn't suffer too much. We've seen that Kate Cunningham needs, you know, shooters at at least three positions to operate and. When you play a SAR who's 
probably a bit more of a 3-4 than a 2-3 at this point in his career, especially with the, with the bigs. They have healthy Bagley, Wiseman, Duran. Uh, you're playing two non-shooters on the floor at all times. And, you know, I think it's been tough for Monty to kind of lean in like a defensive direction with a star on the floor, but also still find the scoring that he beats. Bryce, I know you have some star numbers here, but, you know, I'm just curious, like what, what positives have you seen from him, you know, especially in, in this last month as his rows uh, decreased a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point where I think what makes it hard with the star is you don't have a floor stretching big. And you, mm-hmm. especially right now with Isaiah Stewart not playing, and if you play Isaiah Stewart at the four, again, to get back to this conversation, that means you have one of Duran Wiseman Bagley at the five, who yet again, don't stretch the floor. Or he's playing with Killian Hayes, who, you know, doesn't stretch the floor. So like that's, I think that's where the issue lies is I don't even necessarily agree that the four young guys don't work together in jit. I don't think you can play them all four together. I've kind of changed on that. But I think it's more so the rest of the roster doesn't balance those guys out. I think you can play those guys in different lineups, but you don't have the right veterans, older guys, quote unquote, around them to make it work. So one thing I want to see more is a SAR used in the pick and roll. I think every time they run this action with him in the pick and roll, it yields at least the potential of something good. Now, there was a game a couple of games ago where a SAR catches in the air and tries to finish where he should have just came down and then second jump to finish it. Or maybe he catches, makes the pass out, and then a teammate misses the three. So if you look up a SAR pick and roll, one, the sample size isn't great, and maybe the actual points per possession aren't as good as what I'm saying. I'm telling you, based on what I've seen with my eyes, in the ones that I've really noticed and picked up on, it's at least yielded potential good field goal attempts. So that's one thing I like. But you brought up a good point to me in Denver when I brought this up is, well, then what are you doing with Jalen Duran if Asar is running the pick and roll? And what Bagley are you with, and Wiseman, right? Yeah, what are you doing with Bagley <laughs> yeah. or Wiseman? So it's easy to say, hey, put Asar in the second unit and run him as the four man, right? Well, if he's going to then do those things, what are you doing with the big in the second unit? I, I think maybe the ultimate role is still maybe playing along the baseline. You don't just have to be a corner three-point shooter to play along the baseline if you can time up cuts and those type of things. So eventually he's got to shoot, right? He's got to be able to shoot it a little bit to be more playable. I don't love him. Here are the stats real quick, Amari. I don't love him only playing 18.8 minutes over the last 18 games. I don't mind him coming off the bench. I think that number should be closer to the mid-20s at least. So I don't love that. But these were interesting to me as well. First 18 games, 2.7 2.7 stocks and 9.3 rebounds. Stocks are blocks and steals combined. Last 18 games, only one stock and 4.4 rebounds. And people will say, well, what about the minutes per game? I did the math, assuming I did it correctly. Even if you make the minutes even, project that out. He's at 1.7 stocks. So one less per game over the last 18 or per minute, I get not per minute, per 29.7 minutes, and 5.9 rebounds if you make the minutes even. So he's down 3.4 rebounds. So I do think Asar's activity has decreased a little bit as well with his minutes. Yeah, that's definitely been the case. I think some of that is just Asar, I think has probably been a bit less aggressive than he was early. Like he's defending, trying to keep his hands up, and he's been trying to avoid foul trouble. Yep. You know, and I think that's a big part of it, too. He's also probably, like, played a little bit more like a rookie over the past 18 compared to the first 18. And, you know, like, that's not a knock on him. You expect a rookie to have rookie moments. But he's certainly not been quite as aggressive as he was early. And I think that's directly reflected 
in the numbers. But I think along with that, I think it's also just sort of the the overlap in this roster beginning to show where, you know, Duran missed some time early and now Duran is back. So I think Duran is eating a lot into Asar's row, Asar's rebounding, all of that. I would be curious to see at the end of the season, Asar splits with Isaiah Stewart with the other bigs. I made the point on Twitter on Sunday that, you know, I think you have to play a star. As, as you mentioned earlier too, Bryce, you have to play a star with a big who could space the floor in some c- capacity. You know, if you have Isaiah Stewart behind the three-point line and he's your best spacer in that group, now a star has more defensive rebounds available to him and those probably go up. It's like from a roster standpoint, I'm at the point now where you can probably live with Duran just being your primary lob, like just traditional, like jumpy, jumpy, up and down big. You know, I don't know if you necessarily need... Shout out Laz Jackson for Jumpy Jumpy. Shout out Laz Jackson for Jumpy Jumpy. You know, I don't know if you necessarily need two or even three of those guys on the roster with a star. Imagine if you have... A yeah, big, I like that. Like, imagine you have a big who can uh, shoot threes, but also protect the paint. And those guys are rare. Like, that's not an easy guy to acquire. You probably have to draft a guy like that. But if you have Duran as, like, your, your lone rebounding lap catching big, and then... You have Isaiah Stewart, and then you have a big that can shoot and protect the rim. Now you could probably do some pick and roll with Asar, right? Like now you yeah. have a big stretched out, and Asar could do more of the traditional big things. And you know, I've been making this point, you know, for a while, but I think a lot of Asar's struggles, besides him being a rookie, are just roster related. You know, I think his stress overlap with the bigs on this roster, and just looking at how the Pistons need to utilize Asar, he's going to be shooting quarter threes if you put him on the floor with the bigs they currently have healthy. Like that's just. I don't know a way around that, you know, especially when, you know, teams are comfortable with a star driving to an extent, too. As an off-ball cutter, he's been fine. I just like a straight up, like, I'm just going to blow by you and get a layup. We've seen a lot of times he can't get all the way to the rim. He kind of sells for a mid-range jumper, which has probably been his most consistent shot, honestly. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. But a lot of it to me is just having overlapping chess pieces, you know, like you have like two knights and you need like a uh, a Rick in there somewhere, right? Like it's just too much row overlap. So, you know, I think Asar is going to be fine long term. I just think he's such a unique player that you have to truly reevaluate your entire approach to your fours and, and fives and kind of build around that and allow Asar to play more of that pick and row cutting. Basically, let's just not have a target stuck in the quarter <laughs> offense like it's been this season. So I think long term, I don't love what I'm about to bring up because I do think you want him to be a little bit more of a wing than a forward long term or at least be. A- what would you think about this? And Wes, at least put this in the chat, too, because this is something I think would play into what you've talked about and you and I have talked about. I kind of like the idea of whatever the starting lineup is with Dern at the five, whether that's Boyan at the four, Liver, you know, whatever you say that. What about like essentially an Asar Stewart front court in the second unit of Asar essentially being your four and Stu being that five? I know people are going to question the size of that, but against most second units, I think you can get away with it. As you mentioned, that gets Asar back to really getting to grab those defensive rebounds. He can even grab and go in those situations. Stu can space the floor. He's playing as your third big, but a little bit more as a five man, which we've talked about a lot. I think as we've talked about that, at least for the final 40 games of this season, I think that might be what's best. And what what I kind of hate with this is, I think Marvin Bagley has played well at times. Shout out James Wiseman. I think James Wiseman has played well here recently in the minutes he's got. So I hate leaving those guys out and you could still find minutes for them at certain times. But if we're talking about guys that you're probably really going to prioritize long-term, could that be what's best for a SAR and even Stu 
to finish out this season. And I like that idea a lot, just having Stu at the five in that second unit and the star at the four. And then maybe you're playing bogey at the four in the starting unit or you're just sticking with Isaiah Livers or the Kevin Knox or maybe you swing some sort of trade that gets you a more yeah, genuine yeah. four at the, the deadline. Because I do think a lot of Asara's game kind of thrives on him getting that defensive rebound and then, you know, the entire team runs. And, like, Asar is a really good transition ball handler and playmaker. He's not quite as good in, like, half-court situations. Agreed. And I I'd think you want that. Asar kind of catching the defense off guard running as often as you can. We saw that in the summer league. We saw it earlier in the season. He's just a guy who could absolutely immediately grab the rebound and find a guy for a touchdown pass, even if needed. Like, he's great at that. So they just have to lean into Asar's strengths. And I think a lot of that is just making a roster that that makes Asar look good in a sense, right? Like, he's really, really talented and I think some really unique areas. And you have to you have, you have to build around that. I mean, you you just do. You can't play Asar with like with nor- normal bigs. There's been a lot of debate on is to a starting four or should he just be like the backup five? You made a good point. Not too many second units are really going to punish you size wise to that same extent. A lot of teams that have that that big man death up front are starting two big guys at the four and five. So, you know, matchup wise, you may not still have to give up too much in doing that, but. At this point, Asar's strengths and weaknesses are very, very clear. He's great in transition. He's a great off-ball cutter, great finisher, great passer, especially in transition or just off the move. Like, I remember he grabbed out offensive rebound, you know, it, against Denver, and uh, he immediately swings the ball uh, to the corner and finds bogey for, like, a, a three. Like, that's where he drives, right? Like, you want as much space around him as possible. So, obviously, anything that makes me worry about Asar's fit long-term, it's just from a roster standpoint, you really have to change some things up and I think reevaluate your approach there uh, to maximize this our skill set. Yeah, and Wes says, I'd love that. Prioritize the pairings too. Boyan mm-hmm. locked in with Duran. Asar locked in with Stu. I like that. Like you said, and then maybe at the deadline you make a move, whoever, you know, a different four-man could be. I do want to mention, you brought up kind of that mid-range area for Asar. I, I tweeted that out in the Nuggets game. It seems like that's his best shot. If you look at his field goal percentage by distance, he is 53% 3 to 10 feet. 50% 10 to 16 feet and not a ton of his shots come from that area, about 30% of them. So yeah, quite a few from three to 10 feet. So mm. I do think that's a shot he looks comfortable with at the rim is something I really want to watch for to see how much better he gets. He's 60% from zero to three feet Amari, but he has 41 dunks. So a third of his made field goals, all made field goals are dunks. Obviously we know he can finish dunks off, I want to see a little bit more nuance with his drives in the half court, his finishing, those type of things. Let's get to Marcus Sasser, though. He is the other rookie on this team. What are some positives with Sasser? Obviously, a guy who's been a little bit in and out of the lineup. His minutes aren't always consistent. Sometimes it's into the games, like that Nuggets game where it had gotten away a little bit. And also, Cade had obviously not been able to play in the second half. Let's start positive with Sasser. What have you seen that you really liked? Yeah, the main thing with Sasser is that even with his role sort of ebbing and flowing over the course of the season, and that's probably been a much more of an ebb the last month, he's had some like early game minutes, but it's been more so garbage time with his season shooting numbers are 48% overall, 43% from three, and then 87% at the line. So through all of this, like his shooting splits are fantastic. You know, I think defensively, he probably hasn't been that, that immediate shutdown guy that the team wanted. And I actually asked Marty about this before the Utah game. Like, how have you 
sort of prioritize minutes in that backcourt when you have Cade, Ivy, Sasser, and Killian who are in the mix for minutes. And then, of course, you throw Alec Burks into that as well. And somebody's going to get the short end of the stick. And Monty made an interesting point where, you know, they have a switch, uh, switching defense for the most part. And, you know, when you have Sasser out there or uh, he called Ivy a small guard. You know, Ivy's not maybe small in stature, but just from the point of just switching once a bigger players, you're always giving something up. And I think that's just another roster issue where, you know, this team has just not been great defensively. And when you put a small guard out there, uh, that just makes you even more porous on that end of the floor. But at this point, they have three wins, so that's probably kind of moot anyway, right? Like nothing that has been done so far has not really moved the needle in that regard. So... To me, I just look at the shooting numbers, the fact that he's maintained that efficiency even when he's seemingly going cold at times. And I'm curious to see if you agree with this, Bryce, but he seems like one of the few guys on this roster who can maybe duplicate what you get from Alec Burks as far as just heating up. And then I think for Sasser long-term, the questions are, one, what do you get from him defensively? And then two, can he be more of that on-ball point guard or is he strictly off-ball? Because that also has massive implications on how you have to approach your backcourt rotation going forward as well. This is a really good point because I've brought up on multiple pods about Killian Hayes starter versus bench player splits. I've brought it up with Asar Thompson. And so it's not easy to do what Sasser does where you never know what your role is going to be on a given night. He's come in and played real minutes, like real game time minutes and shot the ball well in those situations, sometimes not well. And then he's also come in at garbage time. So the fact that he has the percentages he does, I think that's a really good call by you, Amari. Defensively, he's not going to be successful if they can't play different type of coverages with him. Like, I'll just, I'll say that. I feel very confidently saying that. And I'm not saying this is the coaching staff's fault right now. I don't know whose fault it is. If they can't execute a simple off-ball communication switch, then they're probably not able to defend ball screens different ways, right? Like maybe you want to switch with Cade Cunningham because he's bigger and he could hold up. And then you want to switch with Jay Nivey and Marcus Sasser. Well, if they're having communication issues, you're not going to be able to run different coverages and ball screen based on personnel for your team and the other team. He's not going to be successful in switch coverage though. Like that's just, he, he is what he is in terms of his size. So that would be something that would help him in terms of an overall scheme that can be a little bit more flexible and fluid. I think one thing I really look forward is the final thing you brought up with Sasser in terms of, is he an off-ball player or is he an on-ball player? I think Marcus Sasser is a small off-ball guard who you play next to a bigger initiator, i.e. Cade Cunningham or somebody like, I even thought like, hey, Killian's running your second unit. He's 6'5". You can make that work, right? Where Marcus Sasser guards the point of attack guy, but your other guard can guard the two. Even Jaden Ivey could do that. And maybe in the second unit, then J.I. is getting some on-ball reps. This stat really stood out to me. Marcus Sasser is shooting 64% on corner threes this year. 64% on corner threes. This is a guy who I think can really shoot it, but I think a little bit more of his usage has come on-ball than what I at least thought and really what I would like. I think the ball sticks with him a little bit more. Do you agree or are you kind of comfortable? Because he is twitchy, like he can create separation on ball. But I guess I kind of envisioned him a little more off ball, Amari. I think I did too, coming into the season. You look at him being 6'2", but he's got that 6'7 wingspan. So at the very least, you would hope he could defend both ones and twos pretty reasonably and even some threes. And some of that's matchup related. But Again, you look at the off-ball shooting numbers from three and also just the makeup of the roster, right, where you have Cade, who we kind of debated, is he 
corner off ball. And I think now that the turnovers have been cut down, you can that debate pretty much ended in the last month. I think everybody's like, yeah, he's an on ball guy. You have Killian. You know, I think there's been a lot of maybe if there's a bigger split between the fan base and like the coaching staff as far as the player evaluations, it's been Jaden Ivey, where I think a lot of the you know, fans want to see the ball in his hands and, and you as well, Bryce. Yeah, I'm I, guilty. Like, I'm comfortable yeah. with this one now. Like, I'm okay with it. Like, yeah. I, I just, I'm willing to lose that Jaden Ivey is a good player. If, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll admit it. But, man, I just, every time I, he wasn't great in Denver, Omari, mm-hmm. for, for especially the first half of that game. But, yeah, I'm I'm keeping all my Ivey stock still. No doubt. And Matsi has really evaluated him as an off-ball guy. He's paired a lot of his minutes with Kate, and I think he just doesn't necessarily trust Ivy as a ball handler at this point. So that leaves Sasser in maybe more of an awkward spot where if he's off-ball and Burgess is off-ball and Ivy's off-ball, that kind of makes things difficult. And people are like, well, why is Killian A still playing? Well, that's because Kate and Killian are the, are the, the point guards, quote-unquote, on this team. So again, I think there's still some row over that we have to figure out. Not that having three off ball guards, you know, two of whom can shoot the bar pretty well is an issue by any means. But again, if you're just talking about Sasser getting on the floor, I think that's it. So if he can be more of a point guard, then that probably helps him a little bit more going forward. But he's had a tendency to just really dribble the ball probably more than necessary when he's gotten it. And he's probably more of a score first guy than a playmaker as well. So that's something to watch going forward. You know, if he can even just be like maybe just a guy who could take care of the ball and you have playmaking around him, like you have a star on the floor, you could probably still make some things happen. But that is something that's limited him so so far as well. But I'm glad you brought up that three-point percentage because he's not a huge sample size, obviously. But if he's a guy that's a knockdown guy from the corners, you probably have to lean into that. What do you have so far? Yeah, so the he has assisted on 73% of his three-pointers. That's actually the lowest on the entire team. I would not have guessed that because most three-point makes are assisted, right? Like usually it's catch and shoot. So even Cade is at 73% of his are assisted. So that's higher than Sasser. Burks is at 77%. Boyan is at 86%. J.I. is at 89%. So Sasser actually has the most unassisted three-point makes on the team, I guess, in some ways, that's a good thing, right? That he has that kind of juice where he can create his own shot. I just didn't think that's what they would be asking him to do. All right, there's plenty of, of other to talk about. You have something else before we go to break, Amari? Because I think no. we're going to shift gear. Okay, we're going to shift gears here a little after the break. We're going to have some fun. Me and Amari got to hang out in Denver over the weekend, got to watch the game live. So we're going to have some fun with that. If you are watching live, Drop some questions in the chat and we'll try to rapid fire through those at the very end. So if you guys have anything about that, drop those in there. We'll try to get to a few. But when we come back, Amari, we're going to talk about our supper in Denver and maybe, maybe talk a little bit of food. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back with segment three. If you're watching live, you saw my face light up and Bryce said food <laughs> because we haven't talked food on here 
in like a month. We'll we'll get to that. Uh, first, let's just talk about Denver. We met up in uh, Denver for the second year in a row. You know, like me and Bryce, we probably, Bryce comes to Detroit like at least once a year, and then we see each other in Denver, and that's like, and then you have Vegas, so we've seen each other three or four times a year. Those are the cities we're doing it in. But, you know, I feel like this weekend was fun, just in a sense, like, of course, we grabbed dinner Saturday night, and then the game Sunday. I feel like this is this is a team that's a bit more fun to dissect, you know, especially live compared to last year with Cade healthy, and we only got 11 mi- minutes of Cade, but I kind of want to get to mac and cheese now. I don't know. How are you feeling, Bryce? How are you feeling? Do whatever you want. Like, we can talk about the game and pregame okay. and all of that if you want, or we can go straight to the, I guess it's not meat and potatoes, it's mac and cheese. I, I love that the segment title was Mac and Williams. Yeah. Wes, I just saw that just now, <laughs> so I was laughing as I saw. Wes, Wes just gets these little nuggets in there, no pun intended. Gets these little nuggets in there that make me laugh. So well done there, Wes. Uh, we're probably not. Well, I'm going to sneak some Monty Williams stuff in there because there was something in his press conference, nothing bad, good. It was just indifferent that I kind of picked up on. So we'll get a little bit of Monty so we make sure this segment is still Mac and Williams. So well done, Wes. Well done. Yes, well done, Wes. So let's touch on the Mac part here. So we grabbed dinner uh, Saturday night with one of Bryce's buddies who stays in Denver. Of course, Bryce stays on the west part of Kansas. So that's the closest team to oh you went to a restaurant i think called working class which was yep. amazing we got like beef short rib lamb like all these it's different fa- sides. family style ordering essentially right yeah like family style ordering and everything was delicious and i ordered a gouda mac and a smoked gouda mac and cheese for the table and the first thing bryce said was no no like i don't want any <laughs> and i was like bryce you have to at least try it like this is going to be delicious you know if you listen to the pod you know that Bryce had a very firm stance that mac and cheese is a children's food. And I've argued that there's like levels to mac and cheese, right? Like you have is the that what I, Hold on. Is that what I said, Wes? Did I say children's food? Can someone go listen back and tell me <laughs> if this is verbatim what I said? What I said, Omari, was all mac and cheese is the same to me. Okay. And if you give me a box of Kraft mac and cheese... That's just as good as anything else. That's what I said, or at least that's what I remember. I feel like there was an implication at some point that mac and cheese was a childish thing to eat if you're over the age of six, but I'll allow people to go back and How could I imply one. something so specific as anything over the age of six? Like that all of a sudden you're getting very specific with some of this stuff. Well, your your oldest kid is nine, so let's go over the age of nine. It probably wasn't six. Anyway. Bryce tried the Gouda mac and cheese. He was like, oh, mac and cheese tastes the same. I'm like, that's not true. And like Bryce, like a lot of mac and cheese he got, like he finished his initial plate and then he went back and got seconds and he had acknowledged all mac and cheese is not the same. That mac and cheese was on a different level. And I was just like, my heart was so full because we've had this debate for like a year. And good mac and cheese is an entirely different thing from the craft stuff. Bryce, I will let you talk about how good that mac and cheese was. Listen, I've told you guys, whether it's basketball takes, whatever, like here's the only thing. All I ask people to do is they appreciate how hard I work and that I love what I do. And I will admit defeat and being wrong when I am. That mac and cheese was so good, man. Yes, there we go. So I give my first plate. I go for seconds. And then I lean over to Amari as like, Amari, this is really good. This is, I said, Amari, this is better than box mac and cheese. So then my friends who... 
listen, I love all my friends and my family. They don't listen to the pod. They don't care about the Pistons. So they don't listen to this stuff. So then we had to go through the whole thing of why this was even a deal. I had to show him our guy, Bob Schmidt over at Fear the Fro. He had made, when I guessed it over there, he did a Bryce versus Mac and Cheese thing on his phone, which my students found whenever they Googled me online, they found the little graphic, which we'll talk about photos here in a little bit as well, because this was part of the dinner as well in terms of photos in my phone. But so we had to tell him the whole story. Here's what was crazy, Omari. Did you finish it or did Casey finish it? Because all I know is I wanted a thirds of the mac and cheese and somebody else ended up taking the rest of it. And I was kind of sad. If we go back there, we would order two or three orders of the mac and cheese. It was it was really good, and I admit defeat. Cool. I'm glad we I'm glad we got that out the way. Bryce admits that homemade classic mac and cheese is better than the box stuff. I'm glad that you could begin this journey because there are levels to good mac and cheese. Like smoked gouda is very different from like a cheddar mac and cheese. And that mac and cheese was like more of like a creamy, like it was served in like a cast iron. You have like the custard. Sort stuff of, sort of a cast iron. We we realized sort of later iron. we got we got bamboozled with the cast iron. It was more of like a presentation thing than like yeah, yeah. actual cast. But anyway, like it was really good. And this is great. Like, you know, now you can do some mac and cheese research and I expect to see mac and cheese on your next Thanksgiving table. That was the other debate because Casey was like, I love mac and cheese, but I don't think I've had That's fondue. Back and cheese on Thanksgiving. Uh, fondue, I don't have like the technical fondue definition. I know that there is like a fondue. Sometimes you see at events or weddings where it's like melted chocolate and you can like dip strawberries or stuff into it. But there's also like cheese fondue. I don't know the, but I, I don't know the exact f- phrase for fondue, but it's almost just like a really, really thick sauce that you can like, that like has a really like thick, it's not West like West says melted know. cheese in a pot that you dip stuff in. Yeah. Like fondue is something that you like dip stuff in. So. Uh, cheese dip. It's cheese dip. But it's like, there's a certain way that you serve it that makes it fondue. This is like outside of my range. I don't know if I've ever had like a real like fondue. No, so what else was tough. good, Omari, was the greens. The greens were really good the as well. The greens were good. So I was the only one who wanted the, the collard greens that they had. You were. But I figured that they were going to be pretty good. They had caramelized onions in them, which I've never it was had good. that type of preparation. I don't even know if they were made with meat, but they were like super savory because of the caramelized onions and it was it, like it was good. Like I kind of joke like we need something great at this table because we just have a table of just like you know, lamb Amari and beef. Thought and we, Amari thought we needed to be healthy. I was like, that's what all of this meat is healthy, right? Like there's nothing wrong with any of this stuff and <laughs> mac and cheese. No, I, I realized it was, it was all really good. If you guys are ever in Denver, working class, the only thing that was frustrating, listen, maybe somebody can tell me why restaurants refuse to do these. I'm sure there's a very legitimate reason. I've never worked in a restaurant. I've never owned a restaurant. Like I, I really get frustrated with restaurants that don't take reservations, Amari. I don't know why it bothers me so much, but it just doesn't make sense. Like maybe there's so many no shows and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe I don't understand it, but we ended up not having to wait very long and Casey was able to find good parking. But working class in Denver, if you have a chance, definitely go and eat there. All the food was really good and we had a really good time. The funny part was we were going to go hang out a little while after and just, you know, stay out and... By the time supper was over, I think all three of us were happy. I think you said it first or somebody said it first. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I'm ready to go home. And I think me and Casey <laughs> were like, yeah, we're ready to go home too. And so we all, we dropped you off at the hotel. We drove back out to to his house and we all went to bed pretty, pretty early for, uh, I don't know, for you, but you know, me and Casey are in our mid thirties with kids. And so it, it was bedtime for us. Definitely for me. It was like Saturday night too. So I'm usually up, but 
Yeah, that was definitely like an Idis meal because not only did we have yeah, true. like the short rib and the lamb and the mac and cheese and the greens and sweet potato fries. Sweet potato fries were good. And biscuits and cornbread. And dessert. And, and like we also had dessert. Like we got like they had like the three desserts. So we got tried it. The, the five-way jalapeno appetizer. Yeah, and then there was like a jalapeno appetizer that had like just different types of uh, peppers prepared. Like they had like pickled peppers. They had a couple of fried stuff like jalapenos with cheese and everything was good like we probably ate like a day's worth of food and like that one meal and like i woke up the next day still full so long story short that was really really good you know this segment was called mac and williams i don't know if we're going to get to monty i kind of just want to talk food this whole time but we yeah. could probably stick in a little bit of monty williams so let's let's talk about the game because yeah. i always like to I always like to appreciate that experience like i never yeah. want to forget now that i've gone to as many games as i have and summer league I still sit there. So again, peek behind the curtain if you haven't listened to the pods since I've talked about this. With the media credential, you know, I get to go sit on the sidelines, literally front row on the court and watch warmups. And that's always so cool, just watching those guys come out, do their routines. I will, and this isn't anything against the Pistons players, some of the Nuggets players were really cool, like KCP stopping and signing autographs. DeAndre Jordan is such a character. My brother-in-law, who doesn't even like basketball, we'll talk a little bit about this. He, him, and my sister, my son, and my nephew all came to the game also, completely independent of me. And he was talking about how much fun it was to watch DeAndre Jordan, just the character that he is. But it's always cool just to see those people, Amari, watch these guys warm up, the coaches, Troy was there, you know, everybody just walking around interacting. And then it was really interesting. I go into the media room with you guys to do the Monty pregame presser. And Monty, listen, I want to be very clear. There is no critique here. It's just an observation. Monty Williams is very soft-spoken, very calm, you know, just has a very specific disposition. And after the the interview, I said, Omari, you kind of adjust your tone to that of Monty Williams. I think I said that to you and Mike, and you guys thought about it for a second. You're like, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. It just, it was interesting. Nobody else maybe really finds this interesting, but I was like, I just sat there and observed because I'm too terrified to actually ask a question or anything. And it was just funny because Monty's very calm, very calculated, just has this and then you guys kind of adjust to that. Maybe that's good beat reporting. Maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Like you read the room and you kind of just adjust to it. I just found it fascinating because you guys would ask your questions essentially in the same tone that Monty was answering the questions. Yeah, it's funny because I've never noticed or like thought about it really. But sometimes when I transcribe, like I have to like turn the volume up to kind of hear, you know, Monty because he does tend to talk in the same tone and we do, I guess we do batch his tone. I think that's kind of natural. Like if the coach yeah. is, you know, speaking in one tone, you don't want to come out like, you know, screaming or it's not even like an intentional, like conscious thing. No. But but, it, but when you mentioned it, I'm like, yeah, like we handled this press conference. Like it was like a, a PBS sit down talk or something, you know, <laughs> like just very, very measured, like not super loud, like probably didn't match the usual energy you would expect from sports but that's who and again there's, there's nothing is, yeah. yeah there's nothing wrong with it i, I don't there's no undertone here because i know some people will take this and be like no no, like legitimately i'm just sitting there and i'm like monte has this tone monte has this tone in which he speaks which everybody does and you guys just naturally match it i just found it interesting you know it's it's no different and like you said, i don't think you guys do it it's not like oh we're interviewing monte we have to do it this way it's just like you said you don't want to come out super loud, energetic, super, super fast talking when he kind of speaks in the tone that he does. So I just found that interesting. 
And then I just a quick shot, like my son, that was his first NBA game. The usher let him walk down to the court with me pregame. So we walked right up to the first row where you were sitting. Unfortunately, the Pistons players had all been done with their warmups. I think we got a little selfie in, which I need you to send me that picture because you haven't yet. That would be picture number four in my phone, which is another thing I got cooked on Twitter about. Not having the only pictures in my phone are Pistons Pulse, Motor City Hoops related, but that was something you found fascinating. I don't even know why I pulled that up, but yeah, all of a sudden, you're taking, a, you're taking a picture of the photos in my phone because yeah. there's so few. Yeah, like Bryce had five. Bryce had five total photos in his phone. Five. He has a smartphone, just like the rest of us in 2024. He has five photos in there. Three of them were like Pistons post related. He had a photo of him and Rainy, his wife, as his home screen. He had a photo of him. It's just the, the three, just the three kids, and just the, the three one. kids as his lock screen, which answered the question of how do you show people your family when they ask. But my mind was blown, and when I like I actually put it on Twitter last night. I think the photo I took with oh, okay. uh, Bryce and his son. But uh, you know, I like I didn't send it because I was like, well, Bryce, like you don't have any other photos of your phone, so like, do you really have room for like a, 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 a <laughs> six photo? Like I don't know. Like I feel like you're just gonna delete it after a while. So I'll send that to you. Yeah, like that that blew my mind. Like I have probably 10,000 photos in my phone, whether it's screenshots or just, you know, stuff from games or hanging out, like whatever. Like I take photos of my food. Like I have so many photos and I respect your commitment to keeping your phone as light as possible, even though that really did truly blow my mind. So what I would do when you send it to me, I would tweet it out like, hey, here's my guy Omari and my son Rowan, whatever. And then I would delete it because I would have have done it. So real quick, Shams just reported former Piston Hamadou Diallo 10-day contract with the Washington Wizards, it looks like. So Hami had been unsigned up to this point. Let's answer a few. Let's just go truly rapid fire here, Amari, because everybody that tuned in live and asked questions, I do want to respect that. So Scott Finley says, love the pod. I don't get Troy's obsession with his young core, which clearly isn't mixing together or getting wins. You'd have to trade one of them if you want anything impactful in return, right? We talked a little bit about how they work together. Let's answer the second part of that rapid fire here, Amari. Do you think they would have to trade one of the young core to get something impactful? Yes. They don't have a, a draft pick they could trade until, I believe, 2028. And because of the 70-year rule, they can only go up to, I guess, maybe it's 2031 now. But I think it's 2030. 2030. Or, or 2030. 2030. But, you know, again, well, yeah, you count 2024, so that's 2030. Yeah, I mean, if you're not giving up a, a pick and you want a difference maker uh, as a midseason trade, then you probably do have to trade one of the guys in your young core. As far as my choice attached to those guys, I think a lot of it is just you had so much hope running into the season on those guys, maybe, maybe, like taking that step forward. And uh, there's still more than half the, the, the season left. So it's probably tough to get to the point like this early where it's like, yeah, like let's just deal one of these guys, especially when you have a lot more flexibility over the summer of the cap space and everything. But yeah, if you're going to trade, like I know that there's a question later for like a Tobias Zach type, you have to go with at least one, young player at minimum because there's teams with picks to play with who could go for those guys and probably make it worthwhile for the team on the other side. So that really does limit sort of, I think, the ceiling of the type of deal the Pistons can make just not having any immediate draft capital available just because of that Isaiah Stewart trade from four years ago. Yeah, so here it is from Twitter. It doesn't have a handle that I can see here. GM Hats, ride it out for the season with minor trades or trade for Tobias, Zach-type player. I think I'm still on the minor. So I think you can make minor moves. You just can't get somebody impactful. So you can trade Boyan, Burks, 
you know, Joe Harris is an expiring contract where maybe you could get something in return for that if somebody needed to clear out some cap space. You know, Monte Morris, I don't know where people are thinking. Maybe if he gets back and plays for a couple weeks, then that's somebody that you could move as well. So I think those are the moves. But remember, you don't want to clear out all of these guys and not get some sort of players that can actually play the minutes in return. So I think it's a really interesting deadline. I'm not in the make a big move, not for Tobias or Zach anyway. Like if it was a young guy that kind of fits the timeline and you just make a move at the deadline instead of waiting till the summer, I would be a little bit more willing to hear that. But I think it's going to be some minor moves around the edges that hopefully then, excuse me, lead to a bigger plan. No doubt. I think that's probably more realistic uh, for a mid-season trade, uh, especially with the season at the point where it's at now where I'll be doing, I think there's a question of can this team just even crack the 17 wins that they had last season, which, you know, as we get deeper into the season, it looks more and more unlikely. So you're not going to save this season regardless at this point. So you probably don't want to overcommit and, you know, sacrifice a young player before you have to. So that's the the question, right? Let's get to this next one. And what is your opinion if we trade Mati for Darvin Ham? I think it's really hard to evaluate coaches outside of the context they're currently in. You know, I know Darvin's sort of had a rough time with LA, but you know, again, I think a lot of the issues with, like, there's critiques, obviously, but my main thing with Mati is that just with this roster, probably no coach is going to make that much of a difference anyway, so I'm like, to be like, I I just don't necessarily see coaching as, like, one of Detroit's most pressing issues at this point. Like, Mati is a coach who's had success in the past. Oh, we know what kind of person that he works best with, and I think you can't really evaluate a coach until they actually have a roster that can compete so that's you know it's tough for me to evaluate how you would go, do next to darvin ham i think with this roster any close we probably have issues yeah i mean i think one thing we've learned through this whole process is we just you're right we don't know a whole lot about coaches we don't know about their relationships with the players even what plays out in the media isn't always the whole story we don't know what's going on behind the scenes like i would like to critique some of monty's rotation stuff but I don't know, maybe Cade wants to play six minutes or nine minutes and then sub out. And J.I. wants to play eight and sub out. And then that puts Monty in a tough spot. So I don't think we have all the information. We don't know what he would like to do, but the team's not able to do. Again, we, we don't see how the interactions and practice are, those type of things. I'll just tell you this. Like, wasn't there just a story with six sources complaining about Darvin Ham and his rotations in L.A.? So I don't know that he would necessarily be the guy. So Another one from Byron. So appreciate the, the the question, Byron, but I don't know that Darvin would necessarily be the guy. There's only a few coaches right now that I'd be like, yep, that's the guy that I would feel comfortable with. He says, can Ivy catch up to Cade level? Are they in the same timeline? Like, I don't think J.I. has the ceiling that Cade does, but as I've said multiple times, I'm still very high on what Jaden Ivy can be in this league. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's really hard to project in that way. And I think for Ivy to get there, he'd have to like really improve as both a playmaker and even a, well, you know, I like, I want to say shooter, but I guess our shooting splits are not really that different at this point. But I do think J.I. could be a really good player just this early in their careers where, you know, K was a number one pick and expected to come in with clear star power and Ivy was seen more as these things have to click for him. I don't know if I've seen it this season where I'm like, yeah, this is a guy that can definitely play at an all-star level, but I do think he could still be a really effective starter. Now, we, the last two questions are pretty similar. Have you heard anything about potential moves? Are we likely to be disappointed by Troy and favorite trade targets? We could dig into the first one first. Uh, I guess disappointment is relative, right? You know, it just depends on what you expect or want to happen. If you're expecting, like, 
some bias Harris or like Zach Levine, you'd probably be disappointed if you just want to trade that brings in a capable four that maybe it's more likely that you'll be pleased with how the trade deadline goes. But again, the Pistons just aren't in a position to make that big deadline swing unless they're prepared to give up like an Ivy or an Asar or one of those guys. So I would say don't say expectations too high for this trade deadline. And along with that, like, you know, like truly, like I'm not sure exactly what deal would be there for the Pistons yet. You know, like hopefully I'll have a little bit more detail, you know, for the next week or two once we get past January 15th and some more guys become trade available. But my sense, like my gut right now, and this isn't me reporting anything, but just sort of projecting how I think things could play out. The Pistons are equipped really, really well for, for a salary dump type deal. So if there's a team like Atlanta that gets to the deadline and they're like, we're paying way too much money for a roster that is like, isn't very good. Like, isn't very good. You're going to have teams I want to get out of the middle. Uh, Chicago's in that boat as well. It may not be Levine, but maybe another role player there where they're like, you know what? We could just take the flexibility going forward. I think that's where the Pistons could really succeed with just all the expiring contracts they have on, on this team. Like, Bogey and Joe Harris are both making like $20 billion. Like, there's something you could do there. So, like, my thinking is that that's what the Pistons are best set up for. Yeah, I mean, I think that... They're going to be active. I expect to see some news, but I don't think it's anything big. You know, I don't think it's Zach Levine. I don't think, you know, every time I bring up Lowry Markin, Sam reminds me like Lowry Markin is not going anywhere. You know, like Lowry would be ideal. You know, I think we've seen truly that, you know, Kyle Kuzma has come up. Like I still love Kuzma in terms of the contract he has, which it's going down. And I think he's a good player that fits into to what this team needs. But I don't know. I, I, I'm not willing to give up a bunch of assets for anybody. I don't want to trade any of the young core, and I don't necessarily want to trade in. You're already at a draft pick deficit instead of a positive for this team. So I don't think I want to make any moves that re- involve those guys. Like, hopefully you can find the right deal where your move is expiring and somebody else is trying to get rid of, you know, like say maybe a one single big, your big contract or something like that. So hopefully it, it balances out the roster in some ways and sets up for for the offseason. But I think the offseason is where maybe you would see a little bit more fireworks after they know where they land in the draft, who that draft pick is going to be, how that's going to play out a little bit. So, all right, Amari, we, we went over an hour. I, was, I thought maybe this would be like a 45 minute episode. And then we got into the first segment and very quickly, I realized that was not going to be the case. So appreciate everybody that tuned in. We know this isn't the ideal time, but everybody that watched live, listen live. And then if you're on podcast, Apple, Spotify, whatever, we appreciate you. Leave rating, review, YouTube, subscribe, like, all of those things. Help us continue to grow. We're all about consistency with the pod in 2024. That's why we bring it to you every week. And we appreciate your guys' support. Remember, be on the lookout. If you're not following us on Twitter, then make sure you hit the bell so you know when it comes up. I believe it's going to be sometime Sunday. We'll have everybody's favorite, Keith Smith. And we can really dive into this stuff in terms of what didn't happen this offseason that could have, what's wrong with the team, and then what assets and those things do they have to make a move at the deadline into next offseason. There's nobody better to talk that with than Keith Smith, and he'll be with us on next week's episode. Wes, thank you as always. Amari, take it away, my guy. 100%. If you are you want to hear trade deadline, break down with the Pistons can to can do, tune in next week. Ideally, it'll be Sunday morning with Keith Smith to get all the information you want there. Uh, and with that, I'll close this out. Big thanks to our audio producer, Robin Chan, our editor-in-chief, Nicole Avery Nichols, our executive producer, Anjanette Delgado, and our sports editor, Kirkland Crawford. And a big thanks to Wes, as always. And we'll talk to you all next week. Just- 
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.